Here's a story that describes uh, the times we live in. came across the AP News Network a little more than a year ago. Even after five years, I'm quoting, Christy Pugh has no trouble sticking to her vegetarian regime. Now follow this. The secret to her success, eating some meat. She says, sometimes I feel like I'm a bad vegetarian, that I'm not strict enough or good enough. The 28-year-old bookkeeper from Concord said in this article, I really like vegetarian food, but I'm just not 100% committed. You see, I really like sausage. The article went on to say that this growing number of people are now referred to as flexitarians. A term that was actually voted by the American Dialect Society the most useful word of the year. Molly Katzen, a cookbook author and founder of a mostly vegetarian restaurant, advocates vegetable-based diets, but she said, I see room for flexibility. She said, I don't feel it's wrong if you have a great big plate of vegetables, but your protein is from a healthy, happy chicken. How'd she know the chicken was happy? That's my, my main question. Charles Stoller, co-director of the Baltimore-based Vegetarian Resource Group, credits the growth of his movement to these flexitarians, vegetarians who dabble in meat and meat eaters who seek out vegetarian meals. Stoller says, this is why Burger King now has a veggie burger. It's not because of true vegetarians. They wouldn't rush to Burger King anyway. Now note this, it's because of the millions of people in the middle They are the driving audience. So there you have it. A most useful word for dieting. Flexitarians. Well, I want to coin a new word today for the church. And I believe millions of people will find it helpful. Flexitarianism. That's a good word for a new denomination, don't you think? Flexitarianism should catch on well because that's the prevailing mood of the church. It fits the millions of people in the middle. You know, they're not 100% committed. They are the undecided. They dabble in both worlds. So the church of the flexitarian denomination can be a place where everyone is comfortable with their lack of commitment. Listen to these advertisements from churches that I guess are trying to lure unsuspecting unbelievers to visit, and certainly the uncommitted believer to be interested in attending. Uh, Here are some of them I have read. One said, there is no fire and brimstone here, no Bible thumping, just practical, witty messages. Another one reads, quote, services at our church have an informal feel. The goal is to make everyone feel welcome, not drive them away. One person advertised for his church saying, the sermons are relevant, upbeat, and best of all, short. Don't say a word. (laughs) You won't hear a lot of preaching about sin. Preaching here doesn't sound like, well, preaching. It's sophisticated. It's friendly talk. Another speaks admiringly of his pastor. This one says, he preaches a salvation message, but the idea is not so much being saved from hell, but saved from meaninglessness. I think this is the prevailing mood of our culture. I watched one of the most popular preachers in our country recently sit through a television interview where he repeatedly dodged the implication that anyone who disbelieved in Christ would not go to heaven. He and a growing host of leaders are amazing flexitarians. 
One author commented that for most preachers caught up in this, they would never say they are trying to compromise the gospel. But they do. For whenever the word of God is decentralized and the gospel is diluted and the hard truths avoided and the tough passages reworded, the truth of scripture is compromised, whether they admit it or not. Have you gotten those advertisements in your mailbox from churches? They all say the same thing, don't they? They advertise, you can come dressed any way you want. Coffee is great here. Music's cool. Our pastor's sermons are short, relevant, witty, above all, non-confrontational, or the word dynamic. Can you imagine having the president of the United States here today, and we advertise, and we are implying he will be our guest, and we know he's, he's not your, 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 your cup of tea, so if you come, we promise you coffee and some music you like. And if he says anything, we'll try to keep it short and witty and dynamic. Can you imagine God visiting? Is he so dull? Is his word so dull and uninteresting that we bait people with coffee and wear what you want to wear and everything's witty and, and cool and short? Would you want to visit if you were God can you imagine getting an advertisement for a church that read, come prepared to worship the true and living God. Come prepared to, to study the scriptures and discover real absolute truth. Come prepared to confess your sin and renew your walk of integrity. We are here to meet God as an assembly. And if you want to meet him too, come and join us. But you say, well, churches, you know, are growing and mass numbers of people are attending. This is actually easy for me to say with our church growing, by the way, but it's true even if it weren't. I would agree with George Peters who wrote this, numerical growth can be deceptive, and I think in America it is foremost in its deception. It may be no more, he writes, than the mushrooming of a social movement. It may be Christendom in the making, but not the church. People are drawn into the church, resulting in a mass of people professing Christianity without any resemblance in lifestyle defined by the New Testament. It came, he wrote, at the expense of the purity of the gospel and true Christian living. The church has become infested with pagans in lifestyle and undefined in theology. Large segments of the American church have become Christo-pagan. Pagan and Christian, flexitarian, and we attract everybody in the middle who is neither committed to Christ or openly committed to paganism. This is the new denomination of our era, and it is the fastest growing one in this culture and country. It is a place led by men with nothing to challenge and people with nothing that changes. A man in our church who usually tells me the latest funny story came up to me a week or two ago, and he said, here's a new one you'll love. I said, okay, try me. He said, well, there was a lawyer, a doctor, and a preacher that were out hunting together. I said, I don't like where this is going. He said, be quiet and listen to me. I said, okay, yes, sir. <laughs> all of a sudden, they saw a buck within range, and all three raised their rifles at the same time and fired. The buck went down. All three jumped up and said, I got it. That was my shot. 
They ran toward the deer and all the while they're arguing with each other about which one of them had killed the deer. And when they arrived, it was, it was too hard to figure out. And so the doctor said, listen, I'll examine the deer and I'll, I'll, I'll settle it. I'll decide, be able to tell who shot, who shot hit the mark. After examining the buck for a few minutes, he rose and said it was definitely the preacher who got him. The lawyer said, wait a minute. You know, how do you know that? What kind of evidence do you have for that? And the doctor said, well, it's obvious. Bullet went in one ear and out the other. (laughs) Perhaps it's going in one ear and out the other because we say nothing worth retaining. And if the preacher says nothing worth retaining, the congregation will find it easier to find nothing worth reforming. The truth is, flexitarianism is really not something new. If you travel back with me 2,000 years or so and listen as a church is warned by Jesus Christ, they have become flexitarians. And the Lord is writing them a personal letter. He is warning them of coming discipline. He will remove their candlestick if they do not repent. Let's open that letter as we continue our study in Revelation chapter 2. While the church we studied in our last session was struggling through faithfully with persecution and pressure, the church in Pergamum is flirting with corruption and immorality. Revelation chapter 2 verse 12. And to the angel or the messenger of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Let's stop for a moment. In the days of John, governors were divided into two classes. One had the right of the sword and the other did not. The one with the right of the sword could literally speak judgment and bring execution. Pergamum was one of those areas where the governor had the right of the sword. He could speak judgment. And it's interesting then that Jesus Christ introduces the one who has true power over life and death. Verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith or faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness or martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And again, in the practice of our Lord's letter writing style, he begins by commending this church before bringing about his criticism or his Challenge. So let's stop for just a moment and understand this commendation. Pergamus, your translation may read, which is the feminine form of the city's name, or Pergamum, which is neuter and more common, was a, a city built on top of a tall hill from which the Mediterranean could be seen 15 miles away. It was a splendid, beautiful city. While it was never as famous as Ephesus or Smyrna, It did boast of a famous library with its 200,000 parchments, second only to the library at Alexandria. In 1878, archaeologists working for the Museum of Berlin excavated the ruins of this ancient city and discovered the massive, stunning altar to Zeus. Uh, The structure was a huge court in the shape of a horseshoe which projected out from the hillside. And the columns that rimmed the court stood 
40 feet high into the air. The podium back toward the hillside itself rose some 18 feet where the base of the altar was. Now around the edge, the base of that structure was 448 feet long and and that base was simply a carving of a battle between the gods and the giants. From a distance, that structure looked like a massive throne jutting out from the hillside. It was considered one of the ancient wonders of of the world. Many believe that this was the thought behind our Lord's comment that they dwelt where Satan had his throne. That would be the prominence of Zeus. Still others believe it refers to the worship of another prominent god named Asclepius. He was the god of, of healing. And his temples actually served as as ancient hospitals where people flocked and there was a combination of superstition and religion along with whatever the medical uh, helps were available for those who were ill. There were pools of water that were considered sacred and miraculous. The symbol for Asclepius uh, was serpents winding around a pole used to this day as the symbol for medicine. I found it interesting that Asclepius is the official name used by Medicare for its email alert system. You sign up to receive Asclepius. I'm not suggesting Medicare is connected to the gods, but getting paid by them is considered miraculous, so maybe there's a connection there. (laughs) People would flock to the temple of Asclepius and spend the night on the floor. And as their custom was, they had non-poisonous serpents that were allowed to roam free. Now this would keep me a million miles away. But the religion believed and taught if you slept upon the floor of the temple and at night one of those serpents touched you or slithered over you, you were healed. I'd be healed. I I would take off if that happened to me. Come in lame, I'd run out. The symbolism of, of a serpent would have been immediately connected by Christians with the serpent. Satan, they would consider the worship of this God to be a counterfeit of God's own healing power, among other things. Add to that the fact that one of the most common names for Asclepius was Asclepius Soter or Asclepius the Savior. Can you imagine such a counterfeit religion? A false God whose symbol is a serpent and whose name is Savior. Jesus Christ commends this church by saying, I know where you, where you live. It is a place where Satan himself is worshipped. But how encouraging for the believer. It's a wonderful thought for Jesus Christ to tell them and us, I know where you live. I know the trouble that you have in that family, perhaps filled with unbelievers. I I know everything about your neighborhood. I know where you work. I know the route you take home from work. There are no surprises in your world. I know. I know exactly what might be the temptation for you to, to stay quiet, to give in, to relax, to flex. Notice verse 13, I know that In spite of that and in spite of where you live, I know you hold fast my name. What a great testimony. 
you hold fast my name. In other words, you are not telling people to follow the Savior and hope that they think that you might be referring to Asclepius and not the only true Savior, whose name is the only name given among men whereby we must be saved. You are holding to him. You, you, you have embraced the truth of, of the Apostle Paul who wrote to the believers through Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I know where you live. I know the temptation I know the false religion. I know the pressure. We know that that in the city, two stone cutters were executed by Diocletian because they refused to carve out the image of Asclepius. Evidently, the believers in Pergamum were not doubting the singular deity of Jesus Christ, and they weren't doubting their faith in the singular deliverance of and by and through Jesus Christ. I commend you, he says, for your testimony. Now the Lord moves from commendation to, to criticism. Notice verse 14. But, tough word, isn't it? But, I have a few things against you. Here they are. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and Practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now for the sake of time, I'll simply review, but the story of Balaam is told. This account appears in Numbers chapter 22, 23, and chapter 24. This is the prophet who could be hired. If you could pay him enough money, he'd tell you what you'd want to hear. Sound familiar? It's going on to this day. Well, evidently, the king of Moab was a little frightened because the Israelites were in town and he knew that they could easily overrun him, especially with the power of their God. And so he hired Balaam to come along and he said, now you go out there and you pronounce curses upon these people. God, of course, kept Balaam from cursing Israel. You may remember Balaam riding his what? His donkey to meet the king and an angel was standing there in the road and And uh, the donkey was allowed to see him, but Balaam didn't see the angel. And so because the donkey stopped, Balaam got upset and he took a stick and he whacked the donkey three times to try to get him to move. And then the Lord put words in the donkey's mouth and actually allowed the donkey to, to speak these words to Balaam. And he said, why are you hitting me? Why are you treating the one who's carried you around for your life this badly? Why would you do that? Balaam responded, look, if I had a sword in my hand instead of a stick, you'd be dead. The amazing thing to me isn't that the donkey was talking to Balaam, but Balaam was talking back to the donkey. You'd think he'd stop and say, now, wait a second, this is a little unusual. When did you learn how to speak? But then an angel appeared and told Balaam what was happening and challenged him to speak only what the what God put in his mouth. And at that moment, the embarrassing analogy was obvious. Balaam, you're the donkey. Now try to do as good 
a job as your donkey did speaking the words I put in your mouth. He got the point and refused to curse Israel. However, he returns and he teaches Balak how to bring Israel down. He says, look, all you've got to do is send Moabite women into the camp and offer them a combination of sexual immorality and idolatry. And they're not going to buy into the, the idolatry, so, so get them to fall for the women. And then the two will, will be combustible. They will be explosive and destructive. And, and Balaam's plan succeeded. And God moved in judgment and disciplined his people. And Balaam goes down now in, in biblical history as the symbol of a man who, who led people to mix religion with sin. He gave Balak the formula that is still at work today in the church. Listen, if you can't curse those people, just corrupt them. What you can't do from the outside, do from the inside. Ruin their moral standing. Cause them to sin. And that will take care of their testimony. The text also tells us that they allowed the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which... Of course, as we've already looked at further, believed that that Christians could claim to be Christians and at the same time be involved in the sexual activity of the temple and attend the pagan orgies and participate in acts of immorality. The temptation hasn't changed over 2,000 years. My friends, if Satan can't curse you, and he can't, he will attempt to corrupt you. Come on, relax. Don't be the odd man out. Fit in. Go along. Don't be a prude. Don't be old-fashioned. In the name of Christian liberty, stretch. A little bit of the Bible, a little bit of sin, a little bit of God, a little bit of the world. Lighten up. The bait of Satan hasn't changed all that much. In fact, one historian provoked my thinking when he said that sexual purity was the one completely new virtue which Christianity introduced into its world. Think about that. Sexual purity was the one virtue that made them distinctive. They introduced that into their world. 75 years before The Apostle John wrote this letter from the Lord to the church. Cicero, the Roman philosopher, had written the prevailing attitude of the politically correct world they all lived in as it related to sexual relationships. Evidently, in this manuscript, he was writing against someone who suggested the ridiculous idea of sexual abstinence before marriage and fidelity during marriage. And he was rather upset That somebody might gain a hearing to teach that. We have his writing extant today. Cicero wrote, and I quote, For the one who thinks that, that men should be forbidden the love of women and women of men, he is extremely severe. I am not able to deny the principle that is a virtue, but he is at odds. Not only with the license of what our age allows, but also with the customs Of our ancestors. When indeed was this not done? When did anyone ever find fault with it? 
When was such permission denied? Now follow this. When was it that that which is now lawful was not lawful? Sound familiar? What is considered lawful may be evil. And someone in Cicero's day was saying it might be legal, but God calls it evil. Paul wrote to the Roman believers regarding the holy standard remaining in spite of the fact that their culture not only practiced sinful lifestyles, but approved and applauded those who did the same. Romans one thirty-two, And we would all say amen to that. Yes, Lord, you know that Roman guilty, that Roman world, boy, were they ever guilty. Those, that, those Greeks, <laughs> wow. Even those Americans, wow, what's our country coming to? Lord, you, you tell them. Tell them out there to repent. What's fascinating is that the Lord does not tell the world here to repent. He tells the church to repent. Verse 16, therefore, repent. Aorist imperative, it is urgent that you do this now. Stop sinning. Turn around. Stop compromising and commingling truth with error. Sin with your testimony. You're headed in the wrong direction. He says, stop now and turn around. He's not telling the world to stop. We expect the the world to continue pell-mell into their immoralities. He's telling the church, stop. You're following the world. Turn around and go go the other direction. He says, if not, if not, verse 17 I will come to you and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Wow. Change in pronouns between you and them. I will come to you and make war against them. Reflects an underlying Hebrew idiom where both pronouns refer to the same body. Church is commanded to deal with immorality and the tolerance of immorality. The imperative mood emphasizes the urgency of the request. In other words, do it now. You are in deep trouble, he says, if you do anything with sin but deal with it seriously and severely. A Christian is in grave danger who feels sorry on Sunday for what he did on Saturday, but he's planning to do it again on Monday. That's not repentance. You don't get points for being here. You don't clock in and assume that that God puts the blinders up and, well, I'm so glad that, that he flexed enough to come in here today. Sir, you may be planning to meet a woman later on this evening you're not married to. The word to you is stop. Dear woman, you've received an inappropriate email from a man who's married and you know he's interested and you're wondering at this very moment, should you respond to him? Don't! Young lady, you've been asked out by a guy you know he doesn't belong to Jesus Christ and you've come up with a hundred reasons why you ought to say yes, say no! It's urgent! Listen to the warning 
He writes to this church and to ours. He that has an ear to hear, verse 17. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you listening? Will you shut my spirit up? God says, will you listen to everyone but him? If you will listen, if you will repent, if you will pursue with great passion, purity, and integrity. He gives us these wonderful, wonderful incentives or commitments to those who are truly sons and daughters of his, to those who truly hate sin, to those who truly despair over their failure and come to him confessing. He says, for those of you that truly are among the conquering ones, the Lord promises, I'm going to do some things for you. Number one, the text says, verse 17, I will give you some hidden manna. Interesting phrase. This promise alludes to the fact of coming nourishment and satisfaction. Some believe it's a reference to Jesus Christ himself, the bread of life. The rabbis, and I think this would be the, 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 the nuance here, the rabbis had already been teaching for some time the tradition that Jeremiah had, had hidden the ark before the destruction of Israel and it would be recovered when Israel was restored in future glory. But those reading this and hearing of this manna that's been hidden away that's going to be theirs would immediately think of the blessing of the messianic age. To the Christians reading this, it would clearly mean the blessings of this coming world when Christ, the true Savior of the world, would reign supreme. Notice verse 17 further, the Lord promises them, and I will, and I will give them a white stone with a new name written on it, on this stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now this is a little tougher, in fact I've I've covered about six or seven different views on this. In fact, all six or seven may be in some ways uh, pulling out a different a nuance of this particular phrase. Wonderful options. I'll just mention two of them for the sake of time. The juries of the Roman court cast their votes in cases involving the death penalty by dropping into an urn one of two stones. Uh, a dark stone was... Representing a guilty verdict. And a white stone represented innocence and acquittal and release. Alcibiades, a Greek statesman, helped us by saying this. And he wrote, a generation before John the Apostle. If I should be accused in a capital case, I would not put my trust in anyone. I would not put my trust even in my mother for fear that through error she might put into the urn a black instead of a white stone. It would determine guilt. White would say, you're released. You're freed from the accusation. You are not condemned. And I think this is a wonderful analogy to the commitment of Christ who said to the Roman believers in chapter 8, verse 33, who will be able to lay a charge against my elect? Who can bring anything against them? I have released them. I have acquitted them. He also wrote, there is therefore now no condemnation, no guilty verdict to them who are in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is another possible meaning of this white stone, and it comes from the world of sports, which prevailed, of course, in that 
era, the, the outstanding victors in the, in, in the Olympic Games, ones who were victorious in a number of different meets, they were just simply outstanding athletes, would be awarded with a white stone, oftentimes, with his name written on it, and it would serve as his ticket to any festivities, the award banquet, and all other festival occasions. In this view, then, and nuance, Christ is promising a heavenly award banquet and festivities for his victorious ones. The text says, on this white stone is a special name, a new name. The word translated new is from the Greek word that doesn't mean new in the sense of, I have a a new coat, I have a new car, I, I have a new job. It's in the sense of new in that I've never seen this before. It's different from anything else. Oh, well, that's new, is the idea. Jesus Christ is going to give every believer a new name, a pet name, just between you and your Lord. We don't know what ours is yet. Yours will be different from mine, but it will be a special name as he gives his bride this particular gift and calls them by their name. Isaiah the prophet said, The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Isaiah 62, 2 and 3. Imagine that. Listen, when you refuse to compromise, when you refuse to be a flexitarian with truth and morals and integrity and values, you will be called names. God says, just, just wait. I've got a name, a new name for you. I'm not even going to tell you what it is right now. But all the name calling will be over and I will refer to you by the special name. We all have a lot of different names, first, second, third names. Some, some of you have four, some of you have hyphens, compound, all sorts of things. Somebody calls and asks to speak to Dr. Davy. I figure it's a seminary student or somebody from the academic world. That doesn't mean a lot to me. Some call me pastor. It means more to me. But I got a call from my daughter this weekend, and she said, Hey, Daddy. That just tears me up. I empty my wallet. I give the keys away. (laughs) Just that name. This is a special name between you and your Lord. In the meantime, let me give you three quick things and we'll, we'll stop. I pick up three warnings from Christ's letter to the church at Pergamum and to the church in Cary. And specifically to every believer. Number one, don't be surprised by the temptation to compromise. Don't be surprised. Anticipate it. Expect it. Your enemy cannot curse you. He will then try to corrupt you and steal your joy away. Secondly, don't be naive in the face of it. Detect it. Look for it. Discern it. 
The enemy hasn't really come up with any new game plan. Frankly, he continues to use the plays that work best. Combine a little sin with, 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 with your, your testimony. You know, live a little bit for the world and then come in here and live a little bit for the Lord. Become a flexitarian. Don't negotiate with it either, thirdly. Don't negotiate with temptation. Fight it. Fight it. Tell yourself no. Don't do that. Don't think that. Don't go there. Don't say that. Don't write that. Don't. Have that conversation with you. Start it tomorrow morning. Maybe start it this afternoon. Don't. What are you thinking? Stop. Maybe like Joseph, you'll have to leave your coat behind and run for your life. Legend has it that Martin Luther, the great reformer, was once in his study and he became so angry with temptation and the thoughts that were just dumping into his mind and his flesh. It seemed as if the devil was in the room with him. According to tradition, he picked up his inkwell and, and as if he were throwing it at the devil, he threw it across the room and it smashed against the wall in his study, leaving a large ink stain. I'm not sure if that's true, but I do know this for sure. Martin Luther used his ink to write such truths that the kingdom of Satan trembled. He also wrote lyrics that spurred the Christian onward with confidence and courage. Listen to this one particular set of lyrics. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be what? Would be losing So we're not leaving here and we're not going to say, okay, now it's just up to me and my resolve and my commitment and I'm going to be pure and I'm going to hold on my values. No, we depend entirely upon Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord, Sabbath is name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle, and he has, and in him so shall we. 